0: Okay, welcome back to Presidential Podcast. This is Philip.
1: And this is Robert. And we're going to part two of James
0: Monroe, the fifth president of the United States. And we ended off our last episode when we said we were going to be talking about the War of 1812. So do you want to pick
1: up there? All right, well, I'm going to uh, backtrack a little bit and uh, remind everyone that uh, James Monroe was what we would consider one of our senior diplomats. He was very experienced, he held high positions in the State Department, he was minister to Great Britain. Uh, When we made the purchase of the Louisiana Purchase, he was, uh, uh, had been minister in France, and had served and helped author Uh, serious and important treaties, like Pinckney J, and had had gotten himself in a bit of trouble. Uh, He'd been governor of Virginia and put down a slave rebellion and became senator, US senator from Virginia, and was an effective senator, went back to the State Department. Uh, In the election of 1808, he was considered a potential candidate by the conservative wing of the Uh, Democratic Republican Party. Back then the two parties were kind of merged and uh, the faction that supported him were called the Quids. They were the uh, pro-business, pro-progress sort of uh, Whigs who are are, um, Democratic Republicans who supported banking interests, uh, commerce, uh, expansion towards the West. And the quids really didn't launch much of a, of a, of a movement. And Madison, who uh, was one of the drafters of the Constitution, a, a protege of Washington and then of Jefferson, uh, secured the nomination, uh, won the election of 1808. Uh, and then through a, a, a series of uh, events, which we'll cover more in, more in depth when we go into Madison, got us engaged in a, in a war with the Great Britain, uh, the newly minted uh, United Kingdom, and we found ourselves fighting essentially what was to become the second American Revolution. The British were uh, encroaching on us in the North and in the West. Uh, they were concerned about the expansion of the American Republic. They were concerned about the expansion of republicanism, of republican government, anti-monarchical government, and so they were uh, causing a lot of problems for the United States. At that time, uh, one of the few republican governments in the world, uh, France being uh, the other republic on the other side of the ocean, the uh, Latin American Uh, revolutions not yet having taken place so they were still under the sway of the the Bourbon Kingdom or the Bourbon Kingdom of Spain and so the British were fighting republicanism in Europe thought they could crush republicanism in the in the cradle in the United States we got into the war of 1812 it went badly at first Uh, It went badly in the middle and at the end we had a couple of victories, notably uh, a victory at the Battle of New Orleans, but the Battle of New Orleans had virtually no effect on the war as it occurred after the treaty ending the war, the Treaty of Ghent, Ghent, a city in Belgium, after the Treaty of Ghent had been signed. So we have to give uh, James Monroe a lot of credit because at the end of the War of 1812. He was serving as the U.S. Secretary of State and as the U.S. Secretary of War. So he was in charge of the war effort. He was also in charge of our diplomatic efforts to negotiate a peace with the British. And he essentially gained the uh, American ascendancy in the West. The British, uh, one of their war aims in the beginning of the War of 1812 was to establish buffer states comprised of American Indians in the American West. And at that time, that was basically the area between Pennsylvania in the east and say Missouri in the west. So the the British thought they could keep Americans out of that entire territory by uh, establishing a series of, of American Indian Uh, countries in that area. Uh, Our our, uh, battles, uh, Battle of Horseshoe Bend, for instance, in Alabama crushed the power of the Indian nations, of the indigenous nations, and killed the idea uh, or the viability of establishing Indian republics or Indian uh, countries in Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Mississippi, Alabama, uh, Western Georgia, and those other places that we were at that point expanding into. The uh, British, by the time we began negotiating the treaty to end the war of 1812 with them, viewed the the indigenous peoples as unreliable allies, as a, uh, a drag on British diplomacy. So they gave them up pretty well. So we gained a... a control over an immense amount of territory, almost a third of the current United States, and uh, more than doubling the uh, territory of the United States at the time.
0: All right, can I ask a question here? When Monroe gets involved in everything, previously he was known as a guy who was kind of pro-British, at least pro-mercantile, and that meant, in a lot of ways, I think, pro-British. Was he a guy who was reluctant to engage in a war with them uh, at first? And when did he... I mean, by the time he was Secretary of War, obviously he was all the way in, but do you know anything about his attitude towards it? I
1: I don't view him as one of the war hawks. Uh, Calhoun, for instance, was a much more uh, avid war hawk. Uh, Monroe clearly was not afraid to use military force. I mean, he uh, crushed, decisively crushed a slave rebellion while he was the governor of Virginia, uh, led the forces himself. So he, he had no uh, inordinate hesitancy to, to use military force, but he realized it was expensive. Uh, the outcome of battles was uh, always up in the air and battles could go dreadfully wrong. Uh, So he believed more in uh, a a more accretion type of uh, uh, strategy, small victories. Uh, The battles in the south were big victories, the Horseshoe Bend and then later the Battle of New Orleans. Those were big victories against the Indians. Um, The British burned the capital. to conclude the war in 1814. They they came up Chesapeake Bay, uh, shelled Baltimore, one of our biggest ports, uh, landed at at, uh, the District of Columbia, burned the White House, uh, and essentially uh, showed that they could master uh, moving their forces anywhere on the continent. So the idea of defeating them was, even if he, thought that was a good idea, was probably pretty well beyond us. So his strategy was to defeat the British enemy, the British allies, the, the American Indians, to establish American presence in those places and have our presence there be so strong, so robust, that it was immovable and the British couldn't get us out.
0: Um, okay. When you say that his goal was to defeat the American Indians more than the British. We do generally teach it as a victory for America against the British. Now, you don't think of a victory normally, the coda to a victory as the losing army going and burning down the capital of the winning army. So how was it viewed in that day? Was it viewed as a victory or...?
1: We had the uh, great victory at Chippewa. Uh where Winfield Scott had his first major combat command. He became the general-in-chief of the U.S. Army and served there until the Civil War, almost 50 years later. Uh, This is seen as the redeeming, the redemption of the U.S. Army in the War of 1812. Before then, uh, we were losing uh, pretty much all the battles that we fought against them. If you ever go up to Lundy Lane, In Ontario, they have a museum there where they have the flags of uh, a large number of American regiments, which they captured a whole lot of our artillery. They have the tunics of six American generals who they captured during the battle. So it was a pretty inglorious war, with Chippewa being the big American victory that just established the Great Lakes as the uh, kind of like the British Channel, like the British Channel kind of protects Britain. From France, uh, after the Battle of Chippewa, we were able to establish in the, in, in the Battle of, of Lake Erie with uh, uh, Commodore Perry, uh, we were able to establish the Great Lakes as the water boundary between us and the British in Canada. Where,
0: where was the Battle of Chippewa?
1: In Ontario, okay. uh, on the shore of uh, Lake Erie. Okay,
0: so like modern day Kitchener or something like that? Somewhere in that area, yeah. Okay. All right, so Monroe fights well or directs well in, in the War of 1812. Um, the election comes up in 1816. Do you want to move on to that? Or do you have so we were, you we were
1: uh, engaged in a, you know, I'm going to say a big orgy of nationalism after the uh, uh, Treaty of Ghent and the victory at New Orleans. I mean, American arms at, at New Orleans had defeated the finest regiments of the British Army, defeated them decisively, done it with American tactics against uh, a British Army trained in Napoleonic warfare, uh, regiments who had stood up against the French Army that at that time, the best military force uh, known in the Western world. Uh, we had defeated them. We had opened the Mississippi. Uh, we had opened the, the West, that vast area between uh, basically Atlanta and New Orleans. You know, If you think De- De- Detroit, Cleveland, Indianapolis, uh, all those cities would not have become American cities without the American uh the good settlement that that uh, Monroe got for us at at Ghent. So we we were pretty we were pretty full of ourselves at this point. And Monroe had the kind of political aura that he was not controversial. Most of his accomplishments probably were not well known to most of the voters. They were well known to the opinion makers. And at that point, uh, they still had the uh, sufficient uh, clout to kind of push the election.
0: I'm a little hazy on how do the British burn down the White House, we don't have any major victories, they whip us at Lundy Lane, or whatever you call it. Lundy Lane. Lundy Lane. And then at the end of the day, Americans are still like, wow, you know, we're pretty tough.
1: Okay, so the British could land sizable forces anywhere on the coast of the United States, anywhere on the Gulf Coast, anywhere on the Atlantic Coast, and they had sufficient forces, uh, naval artillery, field artillery, to defeat uh, the American formations, which were basically militia, Uh, guys, you know, leaving the plow, grabbing the musket, and rushing off to fight the British. They They just weren't a match for the British armies. But in the West, in that vast area where the, Brit- where the British could not project their forces, we were much more successful, particularly under Jackson in the South. We crushed the, uh, the indigenous nations. And the British just didn't have the manpower. They didn't have the logistical power. They, you know, basically, they had sailing ships. So they could go into the, the ports along the coast but they couldn't extend, they couldn't go up past the fall lines on the, on the great rivers and bays and estuaries. So in the interior, we were able to establish ourselves as the dominant power in this vast area between the Atlantic and the Mississippi. And uh, basically that was, was the basis of our, of our victory. And since Jefferson had started this ideology of the American yeoman farmer pushing west, starting little farms, uh, having a, having big families, and then the kids from those families pushing farther west, we were occupying the vast segment of fertile land that essentially was discovered by Europeans and then settled by the American descendants of the British and German settlers. So. Uh, the idea was that we were the dominant power on the ground. The British uh, were just unable, especially after the Battle of New Orleans. Uh, We saw that uh, sufficient American forces could defeat the British, and the British realized that uh, they could get into a long war with us, a long, expensive war with us, or they could pretty much grant that we were an established power and back off. Okay, Okay.
0: so... You say we're pretty full of ourselves going into the election of 1816. Madison has done his two terms, so he's up. The opinion makers are aware of Monroe's accomplishments. Who does he run against? What's the other guy's um, platform, so to speak? And how does the election run out? So
1: uh, Monroe was... Again, the the establishment candidate, if if we want to use those terms. Um, Daniel Tompkins, uh, who was the governor of New York, uh, who later would outlaw slavery in New York, and uh, Crawford of Georgia were the rivals. They kind of canceled each other out. The, uh, the leading politicians, the bankers, the leading business people uh, looked out and they saw Tompkins was kind of too radical for him. Crawford was kind of too Southern, too uncouth, too, too tied to the slavery interests. So uh, Monroe arose as the compromise, sensible candidate, a man of, of uh, substance, a man of accomplishment, a man who had uh, proven diplomatic skills, who could bring the factions together, who was a good administrator. He had just come off running the War Department in a war, so they knew he could organize things and get things done. So he looked looked pretty good for them. And again, uh, at this point, uh, it was still white male property owners who, over 21, who, who uh, comprised the electorate, and they, they liked uh, they liked James and Monroe.
0: Any states go like did Crawford win anything? Did uh, so Tompkins let's go let's anything? go ahead
1: and uh, look at the uh, electoral college map. Okay, give me a second. And we use basically Wikipedia and and basic. You know we don't uh, go into. Uh, controversial things for this. We just take uh, publicly available documents and read from them and extrapolate our, our ideas and opinions from them and then share them with you, the listeners. So. All right. So it looks like
0: um, Crawford won the nomination for his party, and Tompkins won the uh, vice president nomination. Um, the I think Monroe had a, a VP. Um, I think it's Rufus. Is that Rufus? No, okay. There was a second. Rufus point. King was a third-party candidate, I guess. No?
1: And so looking at, the, I, from what I see from here, it looks like... Uh, Monroe pretty much swept the South and present-day Midwest with... Uh, okay, what I'm
0: showing here is... Uh, is... Um, Monroe defeated Crawford in the primary and took Tompkins as his VP. They went against uh, Rufus King, okay, who was also from New York. And it looks like Monroe still won New York, I guess, with Tompkins as his vice president. And King was a Federalist. He took Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Delaware.
1: So essentially, uh, King was able to win in the strongholds of federalism. And uh, Monroe won the rest of the country, including New York, which uh, even back then was a decisive state. It was the largest state in population. The city of New York uh, moved New York uh, away from the federalist, federalist column a bit and uh, provided the uh, margin of victory okay. that state. And-
0: I'm sorry. And uh, the electoral victory is a big one. I mean, it's 183 to 34 in electoral college points. And the popular vote is even more, well, it's almost as overwhelming, 68% to 30%. So he has a big mandate, we would say, in in, uh, today's lingo.
1: Well, the the, the mandate is is a historically large mandate. It it was so big, it was so big that we still remember it to this day as the era of good feeling. That's what I was going to ask you about. Can you talk about that? The degree of popular support, of popular unanimity, oh, I said it right, unanimity, was uh, such that people just basically agreed. We like uh, like this guy, we like the new president, we like Monroe, and we're all in agreement. The the Federalist Party uh, dissolved after this. It was no longer a factor in American electoral politics, and we're all Democratic, Republicans, and uh, not a lot of controversy, not a lot of debate. And again, we think of Monroe primarily uh, up to this point as being a diplomat, as being somebody who's good at diplomacy, good at conciliation, good at persuasion, and we see this this massive electoral victory. So uh, Monroe comes into this into this office probably stronger than than any other candidate, uh, maybe Washington, before him, and maybe. Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1936, when he got reelected, maybe had a similarly impressive uh, electoral victory. But but Monroe basically comes comes in, isn't well known. Uh, people formed a very good opinion of him. He's kind of an old-fashioned guy. He still wears pants that uh, go down to his knees. Still wears buckles on his shoes. Still wears the, the frock coat and all that sort of thing. He has very courtly manners. Um, he's kind of a, of a conventionally religious guy. He goes to church every Sunday. He goes to a Episcopalian service, Anglican service, you know. Never says anything particularly one way or another about religion. And, and in fact, we have no uh, n- uh, no comment... Uh, that he made in public and no correspondence survives that say anything about his beliefs so we we can imagine him singing in church on Sunday you know singing with the uh, when the hymns are sung, saying the prayers aloud uh, going to communion on the communion services and generally sitting there with his wife, his family looking August and, and serene in the church and that was kind of the public, persona that he projected, you know, a smart guy, doesn't talk a lot, thinks a lot, uh, is very persuasive and uh, sort of innocuous in most of his uh, opinions and, and his, his ideas.
0: Now, this is the era of good feelings. It's kind of at the end of the, I mean, there's Quincy. John Quincy Adams is afterwards, but then you're gonna get Jackson, uh, Andrew Jackson, which is gonna blow the whole thing up. This is the era of good feelings. When is the return? Isn't there a return to normalcy? Is that another era?
1: That's back. That's that's all the way to the 1920s. That's like 110 years later. And what
0: was that after the first war?
1: That was after the first World okay. war.
0: Okay. So it seems to me that there's kind of a after a war is over, there's kind of a period where there's like a sigh of relief, kind of like a, a you know, unball your fists a little bit and breathe. And the presidents, Ike, um, Monroe, uh, the presidents that are in that mold maybe benefit from that feeling.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. There's there's an old Clinton. Beatles song. And uh, it's 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 a very peaceful, tranquil, serene song, and one of the, the lines is that the English army had just won the war. You know, so you know we have this idea that when the army wins the war, you know, we're fighting the English army, but the American army had just won the war. You know, things are peaceful, things are calm. There's a sense of unity. We just defeated the foreign foe. Uh, the Star-Spangled Banner had just been written and uh, was being adopted as the, the the national anthem. You know, the the, the uh, uh, Star-Spangled Banner commemorates the repulse of the British assault on Baltimore. Uh, Key wrote it watching the bombardment of Fort McHenry, which is the coastal defense in in the Inner Harbor at Baltimore, and they were able to withstand the British assault. So we're we're pretty high with ourselves back then you know and, and the Indian Wars, I mean people were afraid of the Indians back then. they thought the Indians fought savagely. Uh, they thought that uh, in battles against the Indians the, the prisoners would be mutilated, tortured, uh, that if the Indians were uh, defeated the armed forces, they would go on to the town and slaughter the children or enslave the children and uh, bring the women into, into uh, custody and, and abuse them and exploit them, burn the crops, burn the homes, restore it to, to their. So uh, the sense that we had uh, pushed back the Indians, pushed the Indians back west of the Mississippi, uh, defeated the British and were now able to kind of uh, peacefully develop our farming and our commerce in this vast new country uh, established this this era of good feeling.
0: Okay, so what are the main points that we want to remember about his first term in office?
1: So first thing is a big expansion. Um, I wrote down a little list of states. Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, Maine, Missouri, Wisconsin, all joined the Union. Michigan all all came into the Union as states. I mean, a vast uh, accretion of territory, a vast expansion of the American Republic. And... uh, One of the aspects of it was that as they expanded west in the south, uh, below, south of the Ohio River, and particularly south of the Cumberland River, the land was well-suited for growing cotton. And cotton was becoming like Oil is now, I mean, we think now we strike oil, we get a gusher, the black stuff comes flowing out of the ground, Texas tea, black gold, we all get rich. Back then it was cotton that made people rich like that. And we suddenly got Tennessee, uh, western Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas was about to be developed. Uh, Louisiana was about to be developed. We had this vast new expansion into this cotton country but we needed an immense amount of labor okay. to grow that cotton.
0: I want to talk about the slaves. So are the slaves in this period um, are all states slave states? Are only some states slave states? What What's the um, emotional and psychological pulse of the country at the time. All right. We know, I remember, we talked about our first episode, uh, Monroe did do a slave rebellion. He also uh, sent black slaves back to Liberia, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So he's kind of on both sides of the issue, in a way. But So at, at
1: this point, and again, think back to the year. Okay, we're talking 1816, uh, almost uh, 35 years before the Civil War, 20 years before the Compromise of 1850, four years before the Maine Misery Compromise of 1820. So slavery at this point is still seen as a um, I, you know, I hate to say it with the the current mindset, but it was still a respectable thing. It had not been outlawed. Uh, it was uh, it was legal to own slaves in every state, but the uh, advanced thinkers of the time Washington, Jefferson,
0: yeah, Washington, and Jefferson. so on
1: were thinking slavery was going to die of its own weight. That is, the this, the number of slaves increased as. Uh, uh, plantation owners were forced to uh, support older slaves, that slavery just was not profitable enough to support the slave population. So they were trying to think of a way out of slavery. So we come into the 1860 and the expansion of the South into this great cotton-growing country and the uh, advanced opinion is pretty much slavery is going to die out on its own. What are
0: they thinking in Wisconsin and Michigan?
1: They hate it. They don't want slaves. Is that because of they the They don't moral? want black people. Okay. They, you know, they're just like they just they're trying to get rid of the Indians. You know, they're thinking it's going to be white settlers taking the land, farming the land. You know, all white. So. Okay, All right, we're
0: running out of time, so we're going to end this episode here. What are we looking for uh, for the last part on Monroe?
1: So the growth of plantation slavery, the uh, entry of new states into the Union, the first depression, the first economic depression or recession in uh, Republican history since the you know founding of the Republic, the main uh, Missouri Compromise, In 1820.
0: And are we going to be able to talk about the Monroe Doctrine also?
1: And we'll get to the Monroe Doctrine when we get to the second term. All right,
0: perfect. All right, well, thanks again for listening. Um, I know this was a short episode, but we're going to be trying to make them a little more regular. And uh, this is Philip. And
1: this is Robert.
0: Have a great day.
1: Signing off. Bye-bye.